This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. A few weeks ago, we had that call from Dean. He's a teacher in L.A., and he wanted to know what our thoughts were about handling teen profanity in the classroom. Right, or on campus, anywhere. Yes, and we heard from a lot of listeners about that. And I wanted to share this email from Judy Heights, who lives here in San Diego. She wrote... I taught high school for years. The rules across campus for language were, to say the least, variable. I quickly realized that high schoolers can be lawyers when it comes to negotiating rules. And I think any parent of a teen <laughs> or a middle schooler right? or, or preschooler, or schooler. elementary schooler. <laughs> so she decided to talk with them about how words themselves aren't inherently bad, but in a context, they have meaning and people associate different feelings with them. And then she said, I said if they wanted to curse in my class, they had two choices. I gave them a list of curses from Shakespeare, or I told them they could shout, Moo Cow! <laughs> <laughs> and as you can imagine, Moo Cow was the hit. Kids would get mad, start to curse, and yell, Moo Cow! Then instead of being mad, they would start to laugh. You cannot stay mad while yelling, Moo Cow! She said, I knew I was succeeding when I had kids come into class snickering, saying someone had yelled moo cow in another class, and all the kids laughed, and the teacher was confused. <laughs> she said, the best part was nobody got into trouble. That's right. Avoided the whole question and didn't have to play rules lawyer with the kids. <laughs> exactly. Oh, can you imagine every single day, 35 kids, every single one a lawyer, wanted to challenge yep. you on every single rule. Yep. <laughs> High school litigation. No, thank you. <laughs> no, thanks. No, thanks. <laughs> Moo cow. <laughs> Moo cow. Well, we know you solved this problem in your own way, either at home or school, maybe the workplace. How do you deal with profanity, small and large, uh, kind of safe and not safe at all? We are still taking your calls and your emails about that. 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Good morning. Is this Martha? This is Martha. Who's this? This is Carol Rader, and I'm in Falmouth, Massachusetts. Well, Carol, welcome. I've got Grant here right with hello. me. Hello. <laughs> what can we do for hello, you, Carol? Hello. Welcome. When I was in the sixth grade, which was the last year of elementary school, the town I was in, we all had autograph books. Now, this was in the early 50s. Now, my dad would write in everyone's autograph book, as you travel through life, whatever your goal, keep your eye on the donut and not on the whole. All I can remember his saying to me at the time was it was just something he heard, he remembered from his childhood. Um, he was born in 1912, so he had lived in uh, a little time in New Jersey and then some other time in, in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense to me. There was a coffee shop chain called the Mayflower Coffee Shop, and their slogan 
believe it or not, was exactly that. Oh! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they ran from the 1930s to the 1970s. They were based in New Jersey and New York. Um, you can mm-hmm. find some really wonderful information about them. It looks like the classic coffee shop, the kind of place that you now only see in old movies. And it was based on older kind of catchphrase that you would find in things like high school yearbooks or the, the doggerel column of ladies' magazines or the just that kind of the filler tidbits that would show up on newspapers when uh, they had extra column inches to fill. And the slightly older version that uh, was found by word historian Barry Popick, it goes like this. It's from 1904. Twixt optimist and pessimist, the difference is droll. The optimist, the donut sees. The pessimist, the whole. Uh (laughs) Aha. So it's the same sentiment. (laughs) The later version, which is very much like your father's, as you ramble through life, brother, whatever be your goal, keep your eyes upon the donut and not upon the whole. Yes. Now, did this would show up then mainly in newspapers and magazines? Originally, yeah, but then this this coffee shop adopted it as their motto, and it would appear on their menus and uh, in their advertisements and other places like that, yeah. It's good advice, right? Well, I put it on graduation cards to this day. Oh, do you? Oh, yeah, sure. (laughs) Perfect for that. Yeah, let's hear it one more time, Carol. As you travel through life, whatever your goal, keep your eye on the donut and not on the hole. (laughs) Words to live by. (laughs) And I also appreciate your bringing up the idea of autograph books. I had one in sixth grade as well. It was red, and and it was kind of soft. And Mm -hmm. that was a big deal, right, passing those around and getting people to— It was, and I don't know where mine got lost to. Mm. Um, I haven't seen seen it for years. Um, Mm. But, yes, I mean, we would have them— Passed it around the teachers, other students, and again, you know, parents of friends would, you know, would write, would write in them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was pre-Instagram. Well, I love <laughs> those when I find them. You can often find them scanned at various digital archives because they're filled with teen slang mm. and college slang. They're wonderful mm. to go to, and I can find real live examples of the language used by kids at the time. So, besides yes, the heartfelt yes, message, course. it's actually good for language research. Maybe you're yes. just scanned on there. <laughs> <laughs> You never know. (laughs) Carol, thank you for your call. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right. Take care of yourself, Carol. Call us again sometime, all right? Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I loved those memories, the memories of the—we didn't have signature books. We had yearbooks. Mm -hmm. Right. But they were still this repository of the wisdom of kids in some ways, usually put together by a class of kids with the guidance of a— uh, you know, a teacher, and mm-hmm. but still a, a kid's product of a kid's mind and, a, and the, the year and the era and the things that kids cared about, really yeah. important to us. Yeah. Did you feel pressure to come up with original things? Oh, I different... did. But you know what I did? I would what? always put mysterious predictions for the future. Ooh. Like, beware the man in the green shirt, things like that. <laughs> <laughs> you would have scared me. <laughs> And I just hope that a few of them came true and somebody right now is right. like, how did he know? <laughs> there was a man in a green shirt. <laughs> he did me wrong. <laughs> Grant, you and I have a lot in common, but one thing that's different is that my name is not a verb. Oh, that's true. <laughs> Although sometimes when I... Never mind. <laughs> so she I, really martha that? I, 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 when people ask me my name, I do sometimes say Grant, as in Grant Three Wishes. Oh, that's 
that's nice. Yeah, they'll remember it more likely. They won't call me Graham for the rest of the evening. <laughs> <laughs> Grant-a. Grant-a. Yeah. yeah. So there are a lot of names that have a verb that, yeah, that it could fun- be. Yeah. That could function as a verb. So what are some other ones on the list? Well, there's Bob. Right, Bob for yep. apples. Yep, Mark. Mark, your place in a book. Right, Chip. Chip in for dinner. Yep, Sue. Sue for so sue me. Yeah. <laughs> there are lots of these. Don, yeah. yeah, there's a ton of those. Yeah. Mostly first names, but maybe some last names. Well, yeah, that would be a whole other genre, wouldn't it? <laughs> so I guess we could put the call out. We could put the call out. What are some first names or last names yeah. or, uh, that also double as verbs? Right. Don't josh us now. <laughs> Let us know. 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org. Hi there. You have a way with words. Hi. This is Gabriel Ray. Hey, Gabriel. Where are you calling us from? Virginia Beach, Virginia. Oh, nice. Welcome to the show. What's up? I'm at work, but I told my boss, so I'm, I'm stepped outside to figure out the history of my grandfather's phrases. Wonderful. Let's hear it. What are they? Well, the the one um, that I was thinking about was everything's duck but the bill. Everything's duck but the bill? Yes. Wow, tell us more. When did he say that? What was he what was he doing when he was saying that? Uh, he said it all the time and then my dad started saying it and my grandfather passed away. So, a lot of the times it happens uh in a bad situation, like uh, last time I remember my dad doing it, a uh, bill had showed up for a family dinner that was a little higher than expected, and he was like, "Everything's duck but the bill." And then <laughs> my sister, my sister didn't make it in a ballet tryout, and my dad was like, "Well, everything's duck but the bill," and we just kind of laughed because it's like, "What does that even mean, Dad? Why do you always say that?" And he's like, "You know, son, to be honest, I just don't know." <laughs> but my dad said it all the time. And so he just started saying it. So whether it's good or bad, you know, surprised or, you know, whatever he's doing, he'll just take a breath and like, well, everything's duck but the bill. (laughs) There are a bunch of those in English, uh, phrases that we say, just uh, nonsense, non sequiturs that we just throw in to provide glue in a conversation and move back and forth between awkward situations. But are they all as awkward as this one? (laughs) Often, yes, often. Well, I'm wondering if if he just made it up. I mean, there's an old proverb that goes, nothing ruins a duck like its bill. It's it's a warning to keep your mouth shut. You know, you and your big mouth, you know, a wise duck Mm -hmm. takes care of its bill. Oh, so you're saying in in an awkward situation where somebody doesn't make the ballet and the... The meal isn't what you wanted. It might just be good just to be silent and polite. Yeah, maybe. Or, I mean, you talked about him getting the bill for a meal at a restaurant. Oh, we got the, the wordplay there, too. Yeah. Yeah. Was exactly. he a punster? Sometimes, yeah. He is. He, he's a sharp guy, but he really just says it because none of us know what it means. And for the longest time, I thought it was like a secret that he wouldn't tell us until I turned 18 or something, but that wasn't true. He never knew what it meant either. Well, you know what? We can crowdsource this. If somebody else uses this expression, we will hear about it and we'll let you know, okay? Okay. Very cool. Let us know if you find out more too, all right? Okay, I will. Thank you. Okay. Right, take care, Gabriel. Bye. Thanks a lot. You too. Bye. Take Bye-bye. Care. 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org.
Fred Allen was one of the icons of the golden age of radio, and he once said, Hanging is too good for a man who makes puns. He should be drawn and quoted. <laughs> You're laughing that's in spite very, of yourself. That's a very Fred Allen, though. <laughs> Portland, Portland. <laughs> he also said, I like long walks, especially when they're taken by people who annoy me. <laughs> I'll have to go listen to some more of him. He was really, he was fantastic, and he... Um, he never got the credit he deserved. No. He didn't get the fame quite as much as Jack Benny, but yeah. in a lot of ways he was a better comedian and a better writer than many people who were far richer and far more famous than he was. Oh, that's interesting that you mentioned that because what had attracted me to him originally was another quotation, which is, a human being is nothing but a story with skin around it. Oh, Isn't I love that. Isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? Yeah, and his story deserves to be on film. It really does. Hmm. I read three biographies of Jack Benny, and they're all kind of like, meh, and I really yeah. like Jack Benny, but I think Fred Allen would be where the action would oh, be Oh, no at. kidding. Yeah. I'll have to go read more about him. 877-929-9673. More of what we say and why we say it as Away With Words continues. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Martha Barnett. And I'm Grant Barrett. And here he is, our quiz guy, John Chinesky. Hi, John. Here he is. Hi, Grant. Hi, Martha. How are you guys? What's up, Great. bud? Well, I have for you this week sort of a classic puzzle. Now, a classic puzzle type is to take a word and remove one letter from somewhere in that word to leave another word, right? Mm -hmm. Now, that's what we're going to do today. Classic. But you know what else is classic? Greek. So... The one letter you'll be removing from these words is the name of a Greek letter. For example, if I said, I piled my gear on the horse that was in front, you would remove the letter pi from piled to get the word lead. Now, as you can see, uh, the sentence itself sort of clues the result word, okay? Okay. okay. All right. This, we'll, we'll start with an easy one. The alphabet is fun to learn, I'll wager. <laughs> Alpha. <laughs> alpha and bet. We're removing alpha from alphabet, and we get the word bet, which is also a wager. Yeah. Yes, very good. Perfect. That's how we like to hear it. Here's another one. The police detained him after he ate his fancy meal. The police detained him after he ate his fancy meal. Police. It's. I think it's detained. Hmm. That's what I zeroed in on, but that's the word you're looking for. Yeah, oh, detained. It is? Okay. Eta. Yeah. Take eta eta from detained, and it leaves dined, which is what he did with his fancy meal. Yes, very good, perfect. Now, when my kids emulate me, it makes me super happy. When my kids emulate me, it makes me super happy. Right, so that would be mu, M-U, and right. then you take that out and you get elate. Which is happy. Right, from emulate. Yes, very good. Yeah. Here's another one. The Pinot Noir was rejected. 
Oh, the pi from Pino <laughs> yeah. gives us not. Yeah. Yes. Not. Yes, it was rejected. It was not. How about this one? This one Sharpie is for the three of us to use. Sharpie. Um, share. Pi from Sharpie yeah. leaves share. Yes, very good. The tipsier patrons were in the upper level. The tipsier, meaning drunker? Yes. The tipsier patrons were in the upper level. Yeah, so if you take out psi from tipsier, then you get tier. The upper tier. Yes, very good, Martha. Nice job. Now, as for me, I'm going to hail a taxi and take out the xi and just say ta. Goodbye, guys. (laughs) (laughs) DTFN. We'll talk to you next week. This is a fun show about language. We'd love to have you be a part of it. 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org or talk to us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Gina Stevens. I'm calling from Athens, Texas. So my husband and I, we always listen to your program as we head over to Fort Worth on Saturday. And we always think of uh, possible questions. And it was funny, when we got back home, we weren't even trying to think of the question, but we were watching the weather. And I asked him, I said, it's interesting because he's from New Hampshire, and they say New Hampshireites. Um, I am from North Carolina, and I consider myself a North Carolinian. And then I said, How, I wonder if there is a grammar rule in place that helps one to know whether or not you use an I-A-N at the end or an I-T-E to um, know the, the proper um, moniker for uh, ascribing the area that an individual um, hails from, mm-hmm. like a Bostonian mm-hmm. or a Canaanite. How, is, is there a ru- rule to help us know? Yeah, well, there's not a single rule, is there, Grant? No, no. There's, a, there's about five rules with a zillion exceptions. And I usually tell folks, if you are so deep into place names and demonyms, as they're called, the demonym is the term for a person who belongs to a place. If you're so deep into that, then you probably might as well just memorize the terms and forget the rules. But because um, <laughs> there's so many exceptions, just like the rest of English. But in general, things like um, if it ends in an E or an EA, um, you get like an E-A-N at the end. So Belize, the country Belize, becomes Belizean. Um, but of course, oh. there's an exception like France, which gets you French, right? Yeah, or Paris. In Paris, they're not parasites. No, they're not parasites. Or Parisian. Oh, that's, that, that, that doesn't end, <laughs> but that doesn't end in an E or an E-A, right? Uh-huh. So you also get ends in an A, then becomes in so America becomes American. If it ends in a other vowels, it also tends tends to become in in an N. So Morocco becomes Moroccan. Um, otherwise, you also tend to do an I A N. Not always. So Iran becomes Iranian. But again, a zillion exceptions. And sometimes they take place names where they just decide to do whatever the heck they want. So they have a okay. local nickname which becomes the point of pride and it doesn't have anything to do with the place name. Or they, oh. um, 
because it sounds weird, they don't go with the actual one that follows the rule. They go with something else. So. Yeah, there was a professor uh, at uh, the University of California, Berkeley, uh, George Rippey Stewart, who came up with a list of about seven of those, and H.L. Mencken helped popularize them. Um, if you Google his name or municipal onomastics, you'll find uh, that's the term for this kind of thing, municipal onomastics. Uh, you'll find lots more. He had a couple of books. One is called Names on the Land, which I highly recommend. Another one is um, American Given Names, talks about people's names, but American Place Names. So Names on the Land and American Place Names are two books by George R. Stewart, which I recommend you can find. Most libraries will have a copy here or there, and you can find them at archive.org as well. Excellent. And early, you, you said it was called Municipal what? Municipal Onomastics, O-N-O-M-A, Onomastics. Onomastics? Got it. From the Greek word for name. Yeah, so okay. onomastics is the uh, the naming of things. Basically, there is no fixed set rule. There are some in place, but there are always exceptions to it. And individuals that hail from an area, they can also come up with their own That's right. way of naming their place. Yeah, the exceptions Excellent. are vast. That's a very good summary. Would you like to come work for us? <laughs> <laughs> I would love to. In education, you know, you have to repeat what was said. That's <laughs> Just to right. Make sure you've got it right. Right. Education yeah. and couples therapy. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> if I'm understanding you correctly. Yes. That's right. <laughs> yes, well, you guys have been so ha- helpful, and we uh, certainly enjoy your show. Thank well, you thank very you, much. Gina. Take care, Gina. Best to your husband. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 877-929-9673. The giant statues of Easter Island in the Pacific are called Moai, that's M-O-A-I, and they're the subject of a Nova National Geographic documentary that shows how those giant stone carvings could have been moved into place. And the idea is that they were moved by people pulling on ropes on either side of the Moai, rocking it back and forth. And the indigenous people of Easter Island have a term for this technique. They call it neke-neke, which means walking with no legs. And the reason that I know all of this is because of an email that we received from Alice Peach. She is a librarian in Yuma, Arizona at Crane Middle School there. And she was in the process of changing the library around, which included moving around some furniture and some heavy boxes. And she was telling her family about it over dinner, and she was describing moving this large, heavy, awkward box. And her teenager asked if she moved it like a moai. And without really thinking, Alice replied, Oh, it was a combination of sliding and neke-neke. And she wrote to us to say, I don't know which was more astonishing, my daughter asking if I moved the box like a moai or my response. And she says, in any case, I'm going to use the word (laughs) neke-neke in conversation more often. And I tell you, the following week, I was having to move a refrigerator into place. And I said, let's neke-neke that. (laughs) That's how language changes. That's how language moves. Right? Right. We pick up. Things like magpies. <laughs> 877-929-9673. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Jimmy. I'm calling from Prescott, Arizona. Prescott, Arizona. Welcome to the show. Jimmy, what can we do for you? So uh, we were in our biology class, and we were actually talking about coral. And coral have a mutualistic relationship with these um, algae called zooxanthellae. And... They're spelled right, Z-O-O-X-A-N-T, 
T-H-E-L-L-A-A-E. And the question came up, why is it not pronounced zooxanthellae? And we compared this to, like, for instance, zooplankton. Most people would say zooplankton, but according to this spelling, it would be zooplankton. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so why would the Z-O-O uh, beginning of those words be pronounced zoo? So, like, another example would be we would typically say zoology, mm-hmm. right? But uh, our teacher says that it should be pronounced zoology. And uh-huh. we, again, compare this, like, this just broke out into a big old conversation between our whole class, right? right. Yay. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we compared it to the word Zoom, right? You don't say Zoom. Right. You say Zoom. <laughs> Right. So what's going on here? Well, the super traditional scientific uh, pronunciation would be a long O sound, like zooplankton or zoology. And the reason is that they go back to a Greek stem that means animal that um, gives us that Z-O-O. And the Greek letters there are zeta, which is a Z sound, and then yeah. omega, which is a long O. It's like the big O, the mega O, omega, followed by a short O. That's omicron. There are two different kinds of O's in ancient Greek, omega and omicron. And omicron yeah. is the, the little one and the short one. And so for that reason, in the 19th century, learned scientists... Uh, who had more of a familiarity with classical languages, would have pronounced those as zoology and uh, zooplankton and that kind of thing. Um, But what has happened in recent years, of course, is you mentioned zoo. And um, in uh, London, they formed the uh, Zoological Society of London that that eventually had a zoological garden. But you see those two letters together in English, and uh, you do think zoo. And so today, people will use those words interchangeably, like zoological or zoological. And you know what's really weird, too, is that uh, just as there's diversity in the natural world, there's diversity in language. And if you look up a word like, for example, zooplankton in the Oxford English Dictionary, it has six different pronunciations of it. Oh because, gosh. yeah, you stress the word differently uh, depending on, on uh, what you were taught. And uh, you have the long O as well as the short O. So my question would then become, uh, when you go to the zoo, is yeah. it zoa? Does that change at all? No, it's it's a zoo, but um, that's just because the more that people have seen the word zoological, um, they've just uh, they've started to pronounce it that way. So once zoological was shortened to zoo, it's always been yeah. zoo. Nobody ever said zoa, just plain old zoa, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that was just an abbreviation of a longer word. So Jimmy, you said you were in class. What grade are we talking? Uh, I'm I'm currently a senior, and the class is animal diversity. Okay, ah, so it's great. Sounds like a cool class. Senior in high go. school. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Thanks for taking time out of your class day. We appreciate it. Hey, no problem. All right, take Thank care. Thank you for uh, analyzing our words. <laughs> <laughs> our we enjoyed it. Call us again sometime. Thanks, Jimmy. Yep. Bye. 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 All that history in a single word, right? I know. <laughs> so. To summarize, yeah. there's no summary. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. You, I mean, you can do the strict traditional uh, pronunciation. Right. Well, part of it is the foreignness of the how the words were made. They're not mm-hmm. originally English. 
right. your parts, right? That's right. part of the weirdness mm-hmm. of it. Part of it is scientific terminology, once borrowed into everyday English, tends to undergo some transformation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Part of it is a lot of us learn those words reading them and not by hearing yep. them spoken by experts. So yep. there's all these different paths where they could be transformed. Mm-hmm. Hmm. 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org or talk to us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Peter from Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Hi, Peter. Welcome. What's up? Well, I got um, a phrase that's been bugging me for more than years, actually decades. It's um, it's uh, being beside myself when people say that. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And I've even looked it up, and it's the definition or uh, the expression itself, it, uh, it means to um, have a different emotion. And uh, apparently back back in the day it used to be a good thing, but nowadays it pretty much seems to mean that you're really angry or something. When you are beside yourself, what are you like? If if I was to use that, you mean if I use the expression? Yeah. Uh, if I was to use the expression, I would uh, I would use it in the context of being really upset, angry, mortified, uh, just not a not a good feeling. Yeah. Uh, is it? Does it feel like the usual you? Is this ordinary behavior for you? No, it's not. Okay, hmm. so that's I mean, getting at the crux of what the beside is doing in there, because the beside is what's throwing you, right? Yeah, it really is. It seems like I'm dis, you know, I, I'm having a different body or something. Right. Having an no. out of body experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There it is. Exactly. That, that's the merging of. It. So what's happening here is we're talking about a beside that had another meaning. You probably guessed that. Deep inside, you yeah. knew that beside didn't mean the same beside that we know today. In this expression, it means outside or away from. So it's you kind of having an out-of-body experience, like Martha said. So oh, you're you're okay. actually you're actually acting in a way that is very extraordinary for you, unusual for you. It's um, it's the idea of being away from your true self. Um, you're not being you. You are on the road to leaving your senses or losing your mind. Uh, so I'm watching myself become something else. Yeah, kind of. It's even similar to the some of the older ideas of ecstasy, which mm. is also about being displaced mentally. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. So it's just an old obsolete meaning of beside. It dates to the 1400s. doesn't matter very much. But um, what's interesting about it, it came into English from a translation of the Aeneid um, from the... 1400s uh, through French, which is probably why that expression exists as it does. A lot of people read this translation by William Caxton. He translated it from the French where the expression is hors de soie, O-H-O-R-S-D-E-S-O-I, literally outside of oneself. And um, we borrowed this into English and probably because this one single translation, it became a thing in English. That, that, that That's fascinating. I had no idea that it was it was uh, that old. It's kind of dated now, wouldn't you say, Martha? It's kind of, uh, I wouldn't say mm. archaic, but it's got a flavor to it of uh, maybe literary flavor to it or a, a writerly flavor to it. Yeah, I suppose so. I, I think of somebody older saying, I was beside myself. Now that you mention it, I, I've seen it more in, in writing and uh, where you know I was reading uh, you know, some older novels from the 19th and 18th centuries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't necessarily think of it as negative uh, so much as just astonished, mm-hmm. you know? 
Ah, okay. But right. it, it, uh, it just basically means that you're having a d- different emotion than what you would typically have. Yeah, an yeah. extreme one. One so extreme that, that you're out of your own self. Yeah, I want to elaborate on that. You can be beside yourself with happiness or joy mm-hmm. or surprise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's, that's fascinating. So figure that out for you? Yeah. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Our pleasure, Peter. Thanks for calling. Thanks, Peter. Bye. Bye-bye. Take care. You do find that when you're reading those classic texts, maybe decide to give Dickens a chance one more time, or uh, Jane Austen is on the bedside table, and there's those old expressions that are vaguely familiar, but mm-hmm. the modern brain doesn't quite click on it. Not quite. Not quite. But it's, it, but it's close enough to reality yeah. that you think, oh, yeah. But, you know, the 15th time you glide over that expression, you go look it up. Because <laughs> you're like, <laughs> yeah. oh, right. I can't just keep guessing on this. I need to find out for <laughs> right, sure. Right. <laughs> and this is the place where you find out for sure. It is indeed the place where you can find out answers to all your linguistic questions, or at least most of them. Call us, 877-929-9673, or send it to us in email. That address is words at waywardradio.org. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. Kurt Vonnegut was no fan of semicolons. All they do, he said, is show you've been to college. Donald Barthamay didn't like them either. He said semicolons were ugly, ugly as a tick on a dog's belly. (laughs) I happen to like semicolons. How do you feel about them? You like ticks on a dog's belly. (laughs) (laughs) No, I like, I think well-placed semicolons or a series of well-placed semicolons can be like skipping a stone across the surface of a, a body of water. Until the sentence sinks at the end like the stone <laughs> in, the, in the lake, right? Well, there's that. <laughs> but you like semicolons. They have their place for you. I'm a fan. But no matter how you feel about them, you'll never look at them the same way after you read this book that I really want you to read. It's called semicolon, the past, present, and future of a misunderstood mark. And it's by Cecilia Watson, who is not a linguist, but that's actually really helpful for this book. She's a historian and a philosopher of science, as well as a teacher of writing at Bard College. And she writes about how the first semicolon appeared in 1494. And at that time, and for the next couple of centuries, the rules of punctuation were sort of do-it-yourself. It was a matter of each writer's individual taste and judgment. And back then, punctuation marks were more like rests on a sheet of music. They just sort of helped the reader sound out what the writer intended. And then in the 18th century, she writes that self-appointed grammarians tried to apply the rules of Greek and Latin to English with only limited success. And then in the 19th century, grammarians were devising systems for punctuation that would help them market their books to a public that was increasingly impressed by the study of natural science. She writes, Grammar rules began as an attempt to scientize language because science is what parents wanted their children taught in public schools. 
Those grammarians often disagreed vehemently with each other. But meanwhile, their books began to look more like science texts, including diagrams. That's where we get diagramming sentences. And Watson's book is smart and it's witty. It's often poetic. It's it's packed with lively asides. It's like the kind of, you know, when you have a professor in college and, and you just hang around to hear what their footnotes are or yes. their, their little mm-hmm. asides mm-hmm. during lectures. She talks about how uh, more recently Recently, the presence of a single semicolon in a legal document uh, can make a crucial difference in the interpretation of a law, sometimes with comic uh, consequences and sometimes with tragic ones. But what really strikes me, Grant, is Watson's own journey in writing this book, because she set out to write a biography of a punctuation mark, and describes herself as a reformed grammar fetishist, the sort of person who used to feel that her love for English was best expressed by means of irritation at the sight of a misplaced apostrophe or outright heart palpitations over a comma splice. But by the time she finished writing this book, she said she changed everything about the way she views grammar. She writes, I still love language, but I love it in a richer way. And that as hyperbolic as it may sound, she says that reconsidering our relationship with grammar can make us better people by, quote, focusing us on the deepest, most primary value and purpose of language, true communication and openness to others. That wasn't the conclusion that I expected from this book. She is one of our people. She's one of our people. Because that journey that she took is so common mm-hmm. to people who spend any real time truly looking at what language actually is. I've never met someone who stays a grumpy grammarian. Oh, that's an interesting I've point, never right? who, once they really get into yeah. it and actually look at the truth of language. Right, they, where's the fun in that? They always move along that path. They always become one who, who someone who seeks delight. Yes, exactly. And she clearly has done a wonderful job here. You sound impressed. I impressed and I love that she comes to it from the perspective of a historian of science. Oh, I love that too. Sometimes yeah. outsiders when they come into language they just make a mess of things, but it sounds like she's done <laughs> a, a right job of it. Yeah, that book is Semicolon: The Past, Present and Future of a Misunderstood Mark and it's by Cecilia Watson. We will link to that on the website. If you've got a book to recommend to us and to everyone who's listening, let us know 877-929-9673. Our email words at way wordradio.org or tell us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Marion and I am calling from Norfolk, Virginia. Hello, welcome to the show. Um, I went to see the Downton Abbey movie oh, yeah. the first weekend. It came out, of course, during the movie set in 1927, right? And But one of the things that struck me there was a quick moment in the movie where, and you know the plot here, the king and queen are coming to visit Downton Abbey and there's right. all this activity. So there's this moment where Lady uh, Cora is talking about the preparations and she says, and then there's all the swag or something like that. And it made it sound like swag as stuff, uh, preparations, um, not the you know, the swish of fabric that you might have on draperies. And I got to wondering about the word swag, and was it a thing in 1927? Uh-huh. And you're sure that she didn't mean, like, the the festooning or the bunting or special drapes or any kind of uh, luxurious well, curtains or tablecloths or that sort of thing going down? That didn't seem like the context of her comment, but... Maybe it was. Maybe she was talking about all the flags and decorations that they have to put up. 
What else would she still, have met I, I did, so by swag? She's not talking about gift bags with iPods in them, is she? <laughs> I, I don't think so. Well, the word swag in terms of, of just uh, uh, stuff or plundered booty was, uh, was in use for a good century before 1927. I'm, I'm wondering if it was the, the festooning, because swag has been used uh, to mean that kind of thing that Grant was describing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. since since the late 1700s, at least, mm-hmm. and certainly if you were if you're gussing up a place because the king and queen are coming, there is mm-hmm. a there's a lot of decorating and ornamenting happening. Right, That's true. So the the swag would have meant all the decorating they had to do yeah. in yeah. preparation. Yeah, it could and, have been. Not... The Downton Abbey folks have been generally pretty good about avoiding anachronisms. They they made a few goofs in the. In the um, in the series, if you remember them, uh, there there was a scene where somebody talked about blowing a gasket, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and the expression "push comes to shove." I remember that that they got caught out on both of those because those are those weren't around. But in none that of them crucial sense. to the plot, right? Nothing yeah. nothing was crucial to the plot, and and push comes comes to shove was around in in this country in the US but not in that country uh, for a while but swag is a as a as a way of saying you know festooning or decorating was a thing absolutely. back in the 19th century yeah. absolutely yeah well well okay. back to the late 1700s for sure and and, wow. and there are other uses of it like as Martha said the the plunder or booty um, uses of it also is that old uh, several centuries old Um also, the idea of a swag bag, which is a thing you carry your personal belongings around, existed, but it was Australian um, and New Zealand that existed at the time, too. I, mm-hmm. I don't see how either of those applies. The booty or, no, or kind either. of plunder term doesn't really do, apply. Do we, do we know the, the, the origin of the word swag? No, we don't. It might come from some Scandinavian word, but the truth is that, that the swag in terms of, of booty or plunder at least we're we're not totally sure. Maybe it has to do with some kind of bag, but, but not an acronym, right? Definitely not an right. acronym. <laughs> not not an acronym. Yeah, Marion, okay, what well, did you what did you make of the movie? Well, s- s- people asked me how I liked it, and I mm-hmm. said, well, um, if you liked, it was like watching a whole season of Downton Abbey <laughs> in like two and a half hours. Yeah. Um, and I said, if you liked the series, you're going to like the movie because there's no backstory. They just throw you right in the middle yeah. of it. And if, and if you don't know what's going on before you walk in the movie theater, you're going to be completely lost. <laughs> <laughs> well, Marion, I want to thank you for the question. And I want to thank you for the earworm. Now, now I've got the Downton Abbey theme in my head. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you're very welcome. It was great to talk to you guys. Thank you All so right. much for your Thanks call. For we calling, appreciate Mary. it. Take care. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. 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 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hey there, it's Matt. I'm calling in from Austin, Texas. Welcome to the show. What's up? I called in and I mentioned that, um, you know, I always kind of think about those who have graduated recently from college and the norms and, you know, social type of normalities that we should know or don't know when entering the workforce. Um, and just the kind of do's and don'ts and what is okay and not okay in terms of just navigating the professional versus personal kind of workspace and communication facets of, of your job. Are you new to the work world yourself? I am. I just started my first real uh, position here in Austin uh, with Oracle, actually. And so it's been a great experience. I've been here about 25 days. And, you know, so I'm just learning every day and then really enjoying it. 
as you know, a 22-year-old ending, entering the workforce, working with all, a variety of different age of coworkers. Um, you know, when it comes to, like I said, just the professional versus uh, personal things that I would, would share, whether it be at work or say during lunch, it was really interesting because, you know, I make music personally. And so one of the things I was calling about was, you know, am I allowed to share that I, I make music? Is that too personal? Right. Do my bosses want to know that, you know, I do that and or should I just kind of focus on the formalities, you know? Mm-hmm. You mentioned something about lunch and you remind me of some research that I read by Janet Holmes. She uh, looks into workplace formality and the differences between the ways that we might behave with our bosses and with our peers, people that are roughly the same level. And one of the things that she noted that is often the case in the workplace is that food changes the tone of a meeting. For example, (laughs) if food is present in a meeting, then a meeting is more likely to be informal. When you have a formal meeting and there is food, it causes this dissonance, this problem, this conflict in people's minds because it's not what they're expecting and it's not what the tone should be. And so food can reduce the intensity of the conversation and can take the level of seriousness down a notch. And so sometimes people will find this old joke or saw about bringing an apple to the teacher to be true. Bringing food Mm. to your boss can actually change the relationship with your boss or bringing food to, say, the break room can actually change your relationship with your coworkers. So a lot of this is cultural. You have to learn just how workplaces in general operate or a specific workplace operates. That's super interesting. You're you're more vulnerable when you're eating, right? There's there's something about Mm -hmm. if if you're all eating croissants that that changes the tone. That's, That's very interesting. Right. Another thing that I'm reminded of is this scene in the movie Bull Durham. I know this is an older movie now. Have you ever seen that movie, Matt? I haven't. It's a classic baseball flick. It stars Kevin Costner and... Susan Sarandon. Susan Sarandon and Tim Robbins. There's this scene where Tim Robbins, he's, okay. this, he's this up-and-coming baseball pitcher, and he's a big goofball, and he's got these shower shoes that are covered in fungus. They're the most disgusting things you've ever seen. And Kevin Costner <laughs> says, clean your shoes. And Tim Robbins is like, you know, they're colorful. And Kevin's like, no, you're nobody now. When you're famous, they're colorful. Right now, they're just disgusting. And that's kind of how it is in a workplace. When you're the boss, <laughs> you're funny. When you're not the boss, you're not funny. And so when you're the boss, no you, color. Yeah, yeah. When you're the when you're the boss, you get away with a lot. You know, you can get away with as right. much fungus as you want. But when you're the when you're a right. newbie or a, an underling, you get away with almost nothing. <laughs> that's right. You can tell those bad jokes if yeah. you're the boss, yeah. right? So there's a lot of, like I've worked in workplaces where the boss would like. Uh, boy, everybody, he, he thought he was the funniest guy in the room. He was hilarious. <laughs> boy, but, and you see him in another environment, like for, say, in front of the board, in the board of directors, right. and no, his jokes are dying. They're all just <laughs> right, lying there, right. dying, all just lying <laughs> there, flopping around like fish out of water, and nothing's working <laughs> because he's not the boss in that room. Yeah, Matt, I think that uh, a lot of our listeners will have other observations about trying to strike that balance, right. you know, where you want to be innovative, right. but you also want to fit in. Right. 
If you'd like to see the academic work on this, look for the work by Janet Holmes. That's H-O-L-M-E-S. I believe she okay. is from New Zealand, but she's done some work in the U.S. as well. And her New Zealand work is uh, spot on as well. So Janet Holmes, really good stuff. It's uh, very approachable, even if you're not an expert in the field. And, of course, there's a, cool. there's a ton of stuff for lay people. Most of the stuff you find in, like, uh, your local bookstore is at least readable. But uh, the academic right. stuff tends to be more precise. But um, what I'm really looking forward to is the calls and emails we're going to get about this because I know that people have really good examples of workplace communication gone right and work communication gone poorly. Ooh, we so want to hear yeah. We're looking forward to that. So, Matt, you really opened up a great topic here, and we thank you for that. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for this. I really appreciate it and, and love y'all's work you're doing. Thank you. Take care okay, now. Okay, keep us posted. Bye-bye. Thanks, Matt. Cool. Send your workplace stories. How did communication go badly? What went wrong? What broke? <laughs> and what went well? How did it work? When did you f- come up with that magic language that just got it all working? 877-929-9673. Or email words at waywardradio.org. Or tell us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, yes. Hello. This is Suzanne, and I'm um, calling from Williamsburg, Virginia, but originally I am from Southern California. And I've got a question about the origin of the phrase, go ahead. Go ahead. The little rubber shoes with a little thong that goes between your big toe and your next toe. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up calling them go ahead, as did all my brothers and sisters. But I have found over the years that people call them flip-flops or rubber thongs. Um, Wasn't sure if that was a California phrase or perhaps one that was made up in my family or if it's because I'm 62 years old and it's a phrase that's long since passed. No, it's it's still used, but you're right that it's been uh, localized mainly to California and Hawaii. Um, and the term go-aheads, of course, as you can imagine, I mean, you can probably guess why they're called that, right? I'm not sure. I'm like, just put them on a go-ahead or go right. or go forward. I right. don't know. Yeah, you don't want to back up in those rubber thongs. They'll just come right off I, your feet. In Japan, they're often called zoris. Zoris, Z-O-R-I-S. Yes. Have you heard that one? Yes, I have heard zoris. Yeah, it's still common throughout Southern California and um Hawaii and Guam and a few other mm-hmm. places. It's not the only term used in Hawaii and other places. And right. just like slippers isn't. Zoris is also heard right. in Hawaii and California. Right. Uh, and it seems to have been popularized among uh, U.S. service members mm-hmm. serving in uh, the Pacific. One thing that's yeah. worth pointing out is that not everyone means the same kind of shoe as you do when they talk about go-aheads. Not everyone is thinking about thongs and flip-flops, the rubber shoe with the piece that goes between the big toe and the next toe, as you put it. Some people are thinking about grass slippers, or they're thinking about slip-on shoes, or different kinds of woven shoes, or just a wide variety of shoes can take that name go-ahead. Right. I do remember when I was a teenager, the woven shoes uh, were very popular. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, a little more comfortable, a little wider, too, right? But, you know, on looking through our email that we've received over the years, I see that we pretty regularly get emails about go-aheads 
I'd say a dozen times a year. And I, I haven't oh, checked, really? I haven't checked okay. the phone calls lately, but I'm sure it's probably the same frequency. So it's still out there. People are still wondering about it. You're not alone. Okay. Well, I'm not crazy, and that's what no. I needed to hear. No, I pronounce you <laughs> sane. I pronounce yeah. you sane and normal. Yeah, Thank tell you. your friends. Thank you. I'll let my children know. <laughs> well, good luck with that. I don't know how far you'll get with that one, but with your friends. <laughs> Thanks for calling. Take care. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Thanks to senior producer Stephanie Levine, director Colin Tedeschi, editor Tim Felton, and production assistant Tamar Wittenberg. You can send us a message, subscribe to the podcast, get the newsletter, or catch up on hundreds of past episodes at waywardradio.org. Our toll-free line is always open in the U.S. and Canada, 877-929-9673. Or send us your thoughts to words at waywardradio.org. Away With Words is an independent production of Wayward, Inc., a nonprofit supported by listeners and organizations who are changing the way the world talks about language. We're coming to you from the Recording Arts Center at Studio West in San Diego, California. Thanks for listening. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. Until next time, goodbye. Bye.